0: We're there. Good. (coughs) If you were here last week, you'll know that we're in a new series, preaching series. We're looking at Hebrews chapter 11 and the quite famous catalogue of heroes of faith and uh, we'll be looking at different characters uh, over the coming weeks, different preachers uh, will look at these heroes of faith. But um, last week um, Julian opened the series uh, by looking at uh, chapter verse 1, which is the very famous statement about faith. It's perhaps the key statement about faith uh, in the New Testament and Julian helped us to understand that in quite a broad context and it says now by faith, sorry, now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for and of course the ancients are people in Israel's history who demonstrated the kind of faith uh, that God wanted and what the writer is talking about here. So let's ask God to help us. I I trust that at the end of today we'll look at a number of different things but our faith will be increased. That's what God wants. God wants us to trust him more. So Father, we we pray as we look at different issues, as we look at your word and we look at the contemporary scene and the attacks on your Bible. Lord, I, I, I pray, Father God, that our faith will increase. Holy Spirit, Come and help us. Let the word of God engender faith in us, I pray. In Jesus' name. And uh, if you look at um, verse 6, it tells us the kind of faith um, that pleases God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So if we come and seek God, he wants to bless us. God wants to do us good. We know that. And Julian put it, he said, it's real faith. This is real faith uh, in a real God. And he dealt with it quite broadly. But today I want to kind of narrow it down to the context in which we find it. Uh, This is a, a message spoken to Jewish Christians who are in a particular circumstance. And I want to demonstrate that as we look at verse 3 today, which is going to be uh, the focus uh, of what we're looking at today, that you'll see that it's not only relevant for them, but it's very relevant for us. Um, As we think about faith, I want to just stress that faith isn't an independent commodity. I don't know whether you've had people um, who know you a little bit know about um, your Christian life and so on, and they say, I wish I had your faith. Have anybody say that? As if it was like, I wish I had your optimism. You know, I'm a bit of a pessimist. I wish I had your optimism. Now, there's nothing wrong uh, with, with optimism, but that's not what we're talking about here. Um, faith, simply put, is trusting God, and more specifically, trusting in the promises of God. God has said something, and we, put, we are prepared... To put our trust in it. And um, in the letter to the Hebrews, the words promise, promised, or promises um, appear 17 times. And this is what the writer's doing. He's trying to encourage these Christians, they're under persecution. And he said, This is what God has promised. These are the promises of God. You know, be encouraged, put your faith in them, trust them. And in chapter 11, we get it six times. Well, the question is if God has promised something, do I believe him and know in my heart that he will reward me for what he has promised? The writer puts it like this: inheriting the promises. Are we those who inherit the promises? And then, am I prepared to continue in that belief, living out my life in accordance with what I believe and what I declare, um, no matter what the circumstances? no matter what the consequences or the cost of that may be. So much of the letter up to this point is an attempt by the writer to encourage these uh, Hebrew Christians that having accepted Jesus as their Messiah, their Lord and Saviour, they have inherited a new covenant, a superior covenant to the one that was given to them through Moses. As good as that was, and God had his purpose for that. But uh, the writer says that is now obsolete And now we have a new covenant. And this new covenant has better promises, it has better priesthood, better sacrifices and above all a better inheritance. Everything about it is better, he's saying to them. And uh, he said the old is just a shadow of the good things that have now come to us in Jesus Christ. But this identification with Jesus and his new covenant may bring persecution. Persecution. And it did to these people, largely from their fellow Jews. They were ostracised. They were cast out from the community of Jews because of what they believed. And they felt it very strongly because the affinity with other Jews was very strong. That's still true today. Maggie will tell you that Jews have this wonderful affinity right across the world. They feel so special about being Jews. But now they're put out because of their belief uh, in Jesus. And we get a clue as to some of the things. If you go back just a little way in chapter 10, verse 32, they've already experienced persecution. Remember those early days after you had received the light, had they received Jesus as their saviour, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At Other times you should stood side by side with those who were so treated. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who believe and are saved. So it's trying to encourage them. Don't go back, press on. So they need to be encouraged to press on, to persevere, not to go back. You get all these kind of words in various places in the letter however much pressure you are under. And of course they're encouraged, as always, as we are, to take Jesus as their example. Chapter 12 and verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. "'Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men "'so that you will not grow weary and lose heart.'" Jesus was put out. Jesus was cursed. Jesus was scorned. And they need to follow uh, in his path and not grow weary. Why is this? Why should they press on? Why should they not go back? Uh, Because the best is yet to be. God was offering them something absolutely fantastic, But some of them were not going to inherit that in their lifetime as we read through this chapter. Some of them will have to wait a little longer. So the writer, by way of encouragement, then gives them and us this catalogue of people in Israel's history who believe God in a variety of circumstances. And in living out this belief, they will prepare to live as aliens and strangers in the world. Their attitude is summed up in um, chapter 11 and verse 13. 13 to 16. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking about the country they'd left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. God is promising them something, which means they've got to stand firm in the life that they're living at the moment. Just a, a, a verse in, in 2 Peter. He says, But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heavens and a new earth, the home of of righteousness, looking forward to these things. And um, this is quite consistent with the teaching of Jesus. In Jesus talking to his disciples, he said, and they'd given up a lot, hadn't they? They'd left their fishing, they'd left their families, they'd left their livelihood to follow Jesus. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields, for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. So this kind of faith requires action. It requires some action. It requires living out what we believe in the face, perhaps, of persecution. For some people, openly living for Jesus results in various forms of persecution. We've mentioned some already, but such as alienation, ridicule, disgrace, loss of property, loss of freedom, and even loss of life. And allegiance to Jesus may result in this. But the writer tells us that it's worth it. Right at the end of Hebrews, we get this statement. Let us then go to him, that's Jesus, so I'll just go back a verse. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Significance of that is, he was turfed out from the Jews. He had to suffer uh, outside the city. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore, for, we, for here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. So time and time again the writer is saying, you know, bear the things that you're having to go through at the moment. Keep your faith in Jesus. You know, trust him because there are better things to come. So then faith was about choice. Okay. Faith was about choice. Follow Jesus, face persecution and inherit the promises or go back to their old ways. Is this the kind of choice that we face? Are we faced with this kind of choice? Follow Jesus, be persecuted but inherit the promises or go back, give in, you know, capitulate as it were. Well there are people around the world uh, in many countries where this is the choice, this is the very choice. Either in communistic countries, communist countries or Muslim countries, that is the choice they face. They either follow Jesus and be persecuted or they go back. Now, is this the choice we face? Well, we'll see as we go on if there's any way in which that is. So we're looking at verse 3 today. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. You could paraphrase that and say, God made the world out of nothing. Right? That's the sentence, is it? God made the world out of nothing. And this is important um, that we should look at it today. Firstly, regarding our likely confidence in God's promises for our inheritance. And I'll explain what I mean by that. But secondly, our full and open in- and acceptance of this may result... In persecution for us, in terms of ridicule, alienation, loss of status or loss of job. It happens already, it happens. Of course, um, this is consistent with the first verse you find in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And even in the letter to the Hebrews, right at the beginning, the first couple of verses we read... In the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. Quite clear, this Jesus that we know and love was there at creation and taking part in that creation process. And even more than that, it says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So God is not just the maker, but he's also the sustainer. God didn't just make a thing like a clock and wind it up and let it run down. God sustains all things. And I've often said, the very breath that we breathe is at God's behest. We're only here. Molecules only hold together. Uh, Our bodies only hold together because God is on the throne uh, and God is sustaining all things. So I think the implications regarding God's promises should be clear to us. If God is not the creator and the sustainer of the universe, if he is not the Lord of time and eternity, as we sing, God of time and eternity orchestrates all history, do we mean all history? Do we mean right from the beginning? If we don't believe God as the creator and the sustainer and the controller of all things, why should we have faith in his promises for the future? Or even worse, why should we suffer for it? So the two things are very, very important. It's absolutely foundational. If you uh, go to our... No. Right. This is our website or section of our website and it's part of our statement of faith. And it says, We believe in the divine inspiration and uh, supreme authority of the Old and New Testament scriptures which are the, the written word of God, fully trustworthy for faith and conduct. That's just a way of saying it. People say it in different ways. But what we're saying is the word of God is trustworthy. Now, we do understand that the Word of God consists of a library of books that are different types of literature. Some are history, some are narrative, uh, some are um, poetry, and so on. We need to understand the context which they're given. But it is trustworthy, which includes things about origins. Now, Genesis 1 and, um, and Hebrews, as we are reading 11.3, it includes those things. Now, I don't know whether you are aware of it, but we are facing a massive tide of opposition to these and similar verses in the Bible. It's a growing opposition. At one time, people would have said, yeah, believe the Bible, teach the Bible, no problem. It fits in with society. Um, You'll know the name, but according to Oxford professor Richard Dawkins, we are lunatics to believe such rubbish in the face of overwhelming Scientific evidence. This is what he says. He claims that science has eliminated God and he is on a personal crusade to prove prove it by promoting evolution and discrediting any belief in special supernatural creation. That's what we call it when we declare that God, the creator God, made all things by just speaking. His views and those like him have received a huge boost over the last year or so um, as... Um, people have been celebrating Charles Darwin's bicentenary uh, and the publication of his Origin of the Species in 1859. This has given a great boost to evolutionists to celebrate Darwin and to reinforce um, their teaching. Now, if I was preaching this 160 years ago, it wouldn't be an issue because most of the major scientists in history, people like um, Isaac Newton and Galileo and so on, um, they believed that what they were discovering were the mighty works of God. There was no question about it, but that's not the case today. So I am going to look briefly at some of the issues regarding evolution versus creation, but let me first ask the question, um, is your faith affected by what you believe about origins, You know how things began? Is your faith affected by that? Does it bother you in any way? Is your faith undermined by what what people are saying? Um, Because evolution has been accepted now as fact by our education system, it's in every school, it's part of the national curriculum, um, major scientific institutions and the media, many Christians are embarrassed by the account of creation in Genesis. They would rather avoid it you know, they're very happy to be Christians and, re- and believe most of the Bible but they're actually embarrassed by it because they feel overwhelmed by what they see as the, the bombarding um, by the evolutionists. Now, amongst these people there are those who say well, um, we don't have to be in conflict. Um, I believe that God created the world but he probably did it through evolution. Uh, so... These things can sit side by side. No problem, we're okay. But there is a problem if you, if you take the major doctrines of the Bible. Just as an example, um, the Bible tells us that God created the world and he created it good. Everything he made was good, but it got spoilt by man through man's sin. So there was a point when things were good and there was a pin- then a, a, a point where um, things were bad and the earth was cursed. Now, if it all occurred over millions of years through evolution, at what point was it good and at what point was it bad? Evolution doesn't answer that question in any way and in fact uh, it, it will be just the opposite. And the other thing is too, that some of the major doctrines taught by Paul, particularly in Romans, rely on the fact that we all come from one man, Adam. We all descend from Adam and we all inherit Adam's sin. And the great thing about Christians is they're no longer in Adam, they're now in Christ. There's a whole transformation. So it doesn't work. It actually doesn't work in there. But the trouble is, when well-known and clever people like David Attenborough, uh, and I think he's great, I think his programs are absolutely wonderful, but they frequently slip in the word evolution. And it's done kind of gratuitously. It doesn't need to put it in, but there it goes. It's in there. And... um, you know, and they declare that evolution is an absolute rock-solid fact now. It's a scientific fact. But do you feel intimidated by that? Does that intimidate you in any way? When you read that, well, or hear that, watch that, I just get annoyed about it, to be honest. But perhaps um, a simple definition of evolution might help if you're not familiar with this kind of subject. Okay. The word evolution when applied to the natural world has come to mean that everything that makes up our world has come into being by natural random processes such as natural selection, survival of the fittest and that all living things have developed by these processes from simple organisms into the huge variety of species we see today over hundreds of millions of years if not thousands without any supernatural intervention. We are here by chance, folks, according to the evolutionists. Everything is a pure accident, a fear fluke of nature. That's why that's what it actually says. So does it matter what we believe about origins? I believe it does matter, because if the Bible is in question here, uh, then all of it must be in question. Why should we um, not accept? what the Bible says about origins and then accept what the Bible says about other things. It's written with the same authority and um, it's worth noting that Jesus had no problem with the things that other people have problems with. He had no problem about creation, He had no problem about the flood or, or Jonah uh, being in the fish and so on. There are evolutionists' myths, okay, um, which they put about. Have you heard about the straw man, about knocking down the straw man? What your opponent does is to find some shaky things uh, in what you possibly believe, uh, construct a, a description of you by these shaky things, and then know that they have no trouble in knocking it down because they've got plenty of evidence to knock it down. That's called the straw man, okay? And evolutionists have created straw men, as it were, um, for creationists. And out of this come myths. So we're going to just look at a, a, a couple of myths. The first myth is this. This is what evolutionists say about creationists. Belief in evolution is based on science and belief in special creation is based purely on faith and contradicts the scientific evidence that is increasingly available today. Evolutionists may have theories as to how life is developed but they do not know how the world came into being and how life began. Why? Because no one was there. They don't know and they, they'll, they'll tell you how, how long ago they think it happened. No one was there. Uh, which is, now, which is the greatest statement of faith? God created the world out of nothing or nothing created the world out of nothing. Which takes the most faith? Okay. I think it's the second one, don't you? Yeah, it's the second one. Richard Dawkins on our BBC television programme, Soul of Britain, declared, I think science has really fulfilled the need that religion did in the past of explaining things, explaining why we are here. What is the origin of life? Where did the world come from? What life is about? Science has the answers. But science cannot tell you why we're here, cannot tell you about the origin of life. When Richard Dawkins himself was asked, and how did life start, he hasn't the faintest idea. You know, he's embarrassed by the question. Where did the world come from? What is life all about? So then, belief in special creation, that is belief that God created the heavens and the earth by his power without any other um, intervention is not flying in the face of irrefutable scientific evidence. I want to state that. It is not flying in the face. That's what they'll tell you. They'll say you know, if you only knew the science you wouldn't believe that. I can tell you categorically it is not flying in the face of irrefutable scientific evidence. Um, There's a, a I won't get a chance to read from it, I don't think. But I take this magazine, Creation magazine, comes four times a year. Um, and the articles are all written by scientists, eminent scientists, all right? And they are all creationists because they believe the evidence speaks more of creation than it does evolution. They're not fools. They're, they've got, they're highly qualified people. But I'll explain why the difference, why they believe in evolution and why others uh, sorry, that what they believe in creation, others may believe in evolution. there is in fact, a growing body of eminent scientists worldwide from all branches of science who, having viewed the same scientific data as the evolutionists, contend that the data best fits a creation model rather than an evolution model. So you can have two scientists, perhaps in the same scientific organisations, some institution, sitting side by side, they're both looking at the same information, the same data, and one will conclude this is the mighty works of God, others will say this is a product of evolution. They're looking at the same data, but it depends on the eyes from which they look at it. You know. And um, you know these creation scientists would say that evolution is not promoted on irrefutable evidence of science, but on the basis of science viewed from a national a naturalistic philosophical standpoint. Um, in other words, it's the eyes with which you look at it, the lens through which you look at the evidence will determine what you conclude from it. And here's, I think, is an amazing example of this. Illustrative of this is the introduction to Charles Darwin's Origin of the Species. You know, we all go, Origin of the Species. No, we don't, can't have that, you know. But the introduction was written by Sir Arthur Keith 150 years ago, this is what he said Evolution is unproved and unprovable We only believe it because the only alternative is special creation which is unthinkable So it's a philosophy, it's not pure science, it's a philosophy which says there's no God and I can't go down that road, it must be natural There must be a natural process. And that's what people like David Attenborough have concluded. There is no God, so there must be another alternative. And the only alternative is evolution. Unfortunately, creation scientists are seldom given a hearing, even among Christians, with the consequence that many Christians have given in to the evolutionist lobby and are embarrassed, as I said earlier, by the Genesis account of creation. So when looking at the natural world, our conclusion as to its origin relies entirely on our philosophical viewpoint, the lens through which we see it. You either start with an atheistic naturalism or you start with a creator God. So that's the first myth. It takes faith to believe in evolution. Creationists, the second one, creationists believe that nothing changes that all living things are as they were at the beginning. Okay, So what, what they think creationists believe is what we see out there is exactly how God created it. Now, Julian will tell you, um, you know, that people play around with plants and flowers and produce new ones. Right? And that's what we see around here. So those flowers were not as God directly created them. God made it possible for it to happen. And so we must be careful that as if we are creationists that we mustn't put our heads in the sand and deny um, what is observable for change clearly takes place over time uh, within various species of plants and animals often due to their need to adapt to their environment and undoubtedly as far as the animal world is concerned to do with the survival of the fittest. And so there are observable changes and so there is some evolution that is observable. There are changes that are observable and this is called microevolution and it's endorsed by the creation scientists. So how does this fit in with um, the account of creation in Genesis? Um, Genesis says that God created different kinds. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground, wild animals each according to their kind. And it was so. So how does this kind fit in with um, what we're talking about here, about the fact that we do see microevolution. We see changes that take place even over the lifetime of people who observe. We're going to look at a chart which um, you may or may not be able to see very clearly but I'll read out what's on it. And this is showing three positions. The first one at the top is the evolutionary tree. This is what evolutionists believe. This is what you'll find in your school textbooks. may not look quite like that. Often they've got animals and and all sorts of things uh, tacked onto the branches. But the evolutionist says that all today's species are descended from the one common ancestor which itself evolved from non-living chemicals." Right? Just a few chemicals in some primeval soup, maybe there was a spark or something and these inanimate chemicals became living things that ultimately became living things with intelligence, with programs built into them for, for intelligence. Now you're laughing, but that's what they believe. That that is what the evolutionists believe. That without any outside interference, that's what happens. So time is going from bottom to top. Um, The word morphology, don't worry about that. It's just a variation in living things. Uh, That's what the word means. So that's the evolutionary tree. And as I say, you will find that in your school textbooks. And and that's the position. And um, therefore everything comes back to single cells From goo to you, somebody once said. The primeval soup, from goo to you. Or from microbes to men, uh, if you will. The next one um, is part of the myth suggested by evolutionists regarding creationists. And um, it's the alleged creationist lawn. The genesis kinds were the same as today's species. Okay, so that's what they say is, you say, nothing changes. So what God created at the beginning hasn't changed uh, and it's the species that we see today. That's not what creation scientists believe Um, and that's observable. As I said, we see things change. Uh, Even new species arrive. But what is the true creationist orchard at the bottom there? Uh, Diversity has occurred with time within the original Genesis kinds. So God created kinds of animals With the genetic information capable of being developed into other animals. Let's move on. See, kinds are a step back from species. We, we, you probably hear, you know, scientists and people talking about species. Kinds are a step back species. And here's a scientific fact that Charles Darwin knew nothing about, and it has to do with DNA, that amazing molecule packed with a staggering amount of genetic information arranged in highly organised code or language that allows living things to function, grow and reproduce. We hear about DNA in all sorts of things, criminal investigations, Helen probably learning about um, uh, DNA investigations. But it's amazing, isn't it? They can, you know, dig up a corpse and discover some DNA from years ago that they never were able to look at then and discover who was involved maybe in the death of that person. It's just absolutely amazing. Charles Darwin knew nothing about that. Now, what we have to say is evolutionists claim that from a single cell, which was randomly formed from inanimate material, all life has developed, becoming more and more complex. That's right, isn't it? That evolutionary tree that we saw, as it grows, according to the evolutionists, it gets more and more complex. So eventually, microbes to men. We are obviously far more complex than microbes. So that's that's what the concern is. But you know, from um, observable um, information, the variations that have occurred in various species of animals, sometimes producing new species. With each change, there is a reduction in the gene pool, not an increase. There is less information each time there is a change. Sometimes it's the same information that is transferred. So changes take place, as we can observe, through natural selection, adapting to circumstances, adapting to the environment. Sometimes um, it's um, by mutations, which is, as in the reproductive process, there is a mistake, a mistaken copy, and these mutations produce something different. Uh, But the trend, the DNA information, is always less. The trend is downward, not upward. Now, How on earth evolutionists fly in the face of this, I do not know. But the trend is uh, downward, not upward. And this um, clearly speaks of the special creation of the kinds. The kinds that we find that God created contain all the genetic information necessary when all these variations occur over time. To quote just a a simple example, dogs for instance, possibly, and we don't know, possibly the first dog was something like a wolf. So God, the kind, dog is a wolf. That wolf contained all the genetic information that now is spread about uh, in all the variations of dogs that you see. So it would have had genetic information to produce long-haired dogs, short-haired dogs, big dogs, small dogs, you know, and so on. And of course man has played around with dogs as well. But you can't reverse the process. You can't put a few dogs together and hope that you increase the, the information and go back to where you were. You can't do that. So it's always from more complicated to, to more simple. That is always the way that it operates. And, and so that really flies in the face of what um, the creationists believe. And um, because of their humanistic worldview, um, writers, broadcasters, educators etc. may attempt to blind you with science and claim that evolution is a fact. And that's what they do. And if you, you, know, you trust various publications and books and people, um, you may. But you do not need to be intimidated. I don't believe that we as Christians need uh, to be intimidated. Because evolutionists don't have all the answers. They are acting by faith in the same way that we are and they have interpreted the data in a particular way. So nothing has irrefutably disproved the Bible and we need to renew our confidence in what it says about origins as a foundation for what it says about the future. This is the point I'm trying to get across this morning. Do not be intimidated by those who question the origins in the Bible. They can't disprove it and in fact there are many clever people, um, uh, educated scientific people who say that the the, uh, Bible account best fits what we see in the natural world. So we don't have to be uh, intimidated by them. But let let me just turn back um, to our text and... um, the issue of, of persecution uh, you remember I said that um, that our open trust in the word of God might result in persecution this is already on the horizon uh, we know that laws are changing in this land whereby um, things that were quite biblical and we would have said were of moral standing are now being undermined uh, things about sexuality uh, things about other things like that and um, And so we're under pressure already. Um, But there are people who are currently under pressure regarding their belief in creation. I'll just just quote a few. Uh, You remember I said that the theory of of evolution has become thoroughly institutionalised and woven into the fabric of our society and it's promoted and defended with harsh religious zeal. You know, it's not like somebody well, I've got this theory, and you've got this theory, but you are not allowed to hold your theory because it's it, it's evil. you know creationism they would say is evil, you're not allowed to hold it it, it must be banished from the land. Okay? Um, Joe and I watch question time um, if we can keep awake, and um, just occasionally, not very often, the issue comes up about teaching creation or something. And it is thoroughly shouted down by everybody. Everybody maligns it. It's ridiculed, it's put to one side. Absolute rubbish. And um, you know there are government pr- proposals for independent schools so that anybody, group of people can get together uh, and they can establish a school. And many people are welcoming this. They can't wait to educate their own children or, or educate children to different standards. But there was a, um, a news programme on the radio And um, somebody was saying, yes, this is a very good thing, but there is a danger. You may get the lunatic fringe wanting to teach creation. We are the lunatic fringe. If you believe in creation, we are the lunatic fringe. Um, There's a case which is documented in a a very interesting film about scientists in America uh, who were top of their field, uh, different disciplines, I think there were three of them that are quoted, and um, as, a, as a result of their investigations and all that they were doing, they concluded that what they were observing could well have come about by some intelligence, which you might call intelligent design. Now, they're not saying, they weren't saying at this point, this is the God of the Bible, this is the God we worship. They're just saying, this can hardly have come about without some intelligence. So, they, were, they dared to put that in some publications. That it would appear that maybe, it was all ifs and buts, maybe this speaks of some intelligence. Three of them lost their jobs. Right? They lost their jobs. And so what we're finding is there is freedom of information, freedom of view, freedom of expression if you're the right side of the line. But increasingly we are being sidelined right? as th- those who believe in creation. And there was an article in there, which I won't read, but it was from Israel, um, an educator, um, a head of a department, um, who only suggested to his students that they might consider other alternatives. He was lambasted uh, by the government, by the press, by anybody and everybody, and said it's just a tantamount of saying the earth is flat and the the sun revolves around the earth. You know, they put it in that kind of category. But this morning... What I want to say to you is this. God's word can be trusted. We can trust the word of God. So, by faith it's because we've come to know a God who is reliable. And there's no scientific evidence that will refute this. There are people who say there is, but there is no scientific evidence that will refute this. And one of the problems is, that most of us aren't scientists and it sounds so um, very clever and we think they must be right, they've got all these letters after their name but they are following a philosophy and that's why they say what they say they are not being absolutely true to science none of us, none of us view anything with an open mind we all come with a world view to everything and they have deliberately come with a world, world view that eliminates God, and so God cannot be the answer. Uh, but we can put our confidence in this, so that we can put our confidence in what God has promised us for the future. God has promised us a glorious future for those who put their trust in Jesus Christ. You know, freedom from sin, eternal life, becoming the bride of Christ as we as we talked about, even the bride of Christ now. The glories of the life to come are ours. Because we trust the God who made everything. He's a God of time and eternity. Orchestrates all history. So let's increase our confidence. Let's be those uh, who by faith believe the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we're aware that over the centuries your word has been perhaps one of the most attacked books of the whole of the known world. Lord, clever people have sought to destroy it, to eliminate it, but Father, it stands. It towers above all other literature. Uh, Lord, your word will not be eliminated. Your word will last forever. Your word tells us that. Your word will stand forever. And Father God, Lord, we are sometimes we feel bamboozled, we feel intimidated by the very clever people who seek to undermine it. But Lord, we renew our confidence in you. We trust you. We trust you that you are the creator and sustainer of all things. Everything is in your hand. Everything is under your control. Therefore, if you promised us eternal life, if you promised us a new heavens and a new earth, you can be relied on, you can be trusted. So, Father, continue with us, Lord, as we go through this this series, Lord, as we look at people who trusted you, even at the cost of their lives. Lord, may they inspire us and encourage us to greater exploits of faith. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.